We're going to get started in Ephesians, and like Brian said, we're looking at Ephesians as a kind of a roadmap to deal with some very specific topics that uh, Paul works through in the book of Ephesians. And the book of Ephesians is unique in such a way that scholars believe that the book of Ephesians was actually a circular letter that was written specifically for that purpose. For churches that had been planted in and around the area of Ephesus so that that letter could then be passed along to all of those churches. And so, as such, uh, Paul doesn't actually uh, address anyone specifically in this letter, which is unlike the other letters. A lot of the other letters of Paul are very personal in the sense that they're addressed to specific people. And it's almost weird that he does that because we know from Acts that uh, Paul spent three years, around three years, just shy of three years in Ephesus, helping to plant that work in and around that area and spending time with those people. So he had good relationships with those people. Um, and so it's interesting that, that the letter would be written in that way. And so what scholars have deduced from that is that it was a letter that was written for the purpose of being passed around. And as such, the personal uh, greetings were left out of that letter. It was written by the Apostle Paul. Well, how do we know? Well, it says Paul, an apostle. So we're, we're giving credence to who is claiming to actually write that. And the church fathers uh, gave it that credence as well. But it's written closer to the end of Paul's life. Uh, the very first series that we did together um, as a body was through the book of Galatians. And one of the reasons that we went through that series is that, or through that book rather, is that Paul really presents the gospel in its most bare bones, stripped down. This is the essence of the gospel. By works of the law shall no man be justified. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And, and, and Paul says, and if anyone comes along and preaches a gospel that is contrary to that, that is different than that, let them be anathema. Let them be absolutely as damned as you can possibly be damned. Let them be cut off from God. If anyone comes along and says, uh, yeah, it's grace, but you've got to work to kind of seal the deal, he, Paul says, don't, don't even let them come in to your meetings. Don't even gather with them. And, and so we went through that so that we could really get this is the core of the gospel. And from there, we jumped right into the book of Luke because we know that Paul would write in Corinthians, he would say that it is by beholding Christ that we are changed from one degree of glory to another. And we said, okay, if we really want to be changed by this gospel, we need to see Christ. And so we went through the, the gospel of Luke so that we could see Christ and his life and his ministry and his physical body. And then we just spent the last several weeks going through the book of Acts so that we could bridge that gap that, that is Christ's life and work in his physical body. In Acts, we see Christ's life and work in his spiritual body so that we can get to this beautiful letter that Paul writes where he really gives instruction to the church. And what we need to understand and what is so 
common in our culture and in our day and age in, in, a, in a society, in a culture that is very type A personality driven, that's very driven by a moralistic, therapeutic, deistic idea of religion. Whenever we go to Paul, we often jump to the second half of Paul's letters. Why? Well, because the second Paul, half of Paul's letters are where he's going, here's what you should do. The problem is, is that we ignore the therefore in Paul's letter that's like a hinge upon all of the do's that he's telling us to do hang. And what does it hang on? That door hangs on the gospel of Jesus Christ. That all of the do's that Paul tells us to get busy with in life as the church have to be connected to the done of the gospel. And so Paul spends the first half of almost all of his letters just going, guys, here's the gospel. And if we don't deal with the gospel, nothing that we do matters. Because anything that we do, if it's divorced from the gospel of Jesus Christ, if it's not motivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ, if it's not being done from a place of rest and confidence in who Jesus is and what he's done, it just works. And we can say with Isaiah that it's filthy rags. Filthy rags. Paul would say, a pile of dung. And you can go to both of those and go study the original translation, both in Isaiah and uh, with Paul, and, and have a field day uh, with the language that he uses there. It, it, it is not pleasant, colloquial, kind of like beat around the book. Both Isaiah and Paul, they just go for it. And uh, guys, that's what our works are apart from the gospel. The things that we do should be motivated from a place that says... This is who God is. This is what He has done for me in Christ. This is who I am because of that. And because my identity has been changed because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then the things that God has done for me in Christ, I want to do for other people. And that's how we live out of the done of the gospel. So we say, not, hey, you guys, you need to be hospitable. Because Christians should be hospitable. And if you aren't hospitable, you are bad, 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 bad Christians. That's not doing that's motivated from the gospel. Rather, it is this. As love compels each one at the place of maturity that they are in in their growth because the Holy Spirit is conforming them into the image of the Son daily by His grace through faith in Christ alone. Every, do you guys get that? That's not a once for all time. That's a daily thing. Daily, it is by grace through faith in Christ alone. How am I going to get through this day? It's by grace through faith in Christ alone. How am I going to get through this trial? It's by grace through faith in Christ alone. Every single day. And so rather we would say, because God in Christ has been hospitable to me, therefore... I'm going to be hospitable to these people. Now, can we just get real here? When you're being hospitable to people that are really easy to be hospitable from, to, when you're being hospitable to people that are really easy to be hospitable to, you're not doing that from motivation of the gospel. 
You're doing that because they're really easy to get along with and be hospitable to. Can we just like recognize that about ourselves, right? That's not a moment to like, you know, pat yourself on the back. It's in those moments when someone has wronged you, maybe a family member, because we all know family really knows how to wrong us better than anybody else, right? Or worse, better, whatever. Family, they know the buttons to push and they push them, right? So maybe it's a family member who has really, really hurt you. And you're put into a position where now you are placed in a position. They're coming to your house, whether you, whether you like it or not. <laughs> and you have a choice in that moment. And what's the choice? You can, in your flesh, reject them and hold them at arm's length. You can hold their offense towards you over their head and say that they owe a debt to you. Or you can say... I owed a debt I couldn't pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. I have been forgiven. I have been accepted. I have found hospitality in Christ. And because God in Christ has been hospitable to me, therefore I am, and I don't know how, except by grace through faith in Christ alone, I want to and I'm going to extend hospitality to this person. Do you see how that plays out? I mean, and that, and that applies to almost every area of our lives, just extrapolated out. In every circumstance, in every situation, the thing that you're doing, you need to be asking, how is the gospel informing how I'm going to live in this situation? How is the gospel informing how today I'm going to live by grace through faith in Christ alone? That's what living from the done of the gospel is all about. Thank you, Lord. You guys love getting good news? It's good, right? So, sorry, I just got some good news. I just got to praise the Lord for that right now. Thank you, Lord. So, Ephesians, written by the Apostle Paul, toward the end of his life, different from Galatians. That was written toward the beginning of Paul, not his life, but the beginning of his ministry. And so this is presumably around 20 years later. He's writing from Rome where he is in captivity, right? Total victory, as one of my friends would like to say. So here, here's Paul, the prime of his ministry life in prison, right? That's what we call up and to the right, right? No? I mean, it sure doesn't seem like it, but here Paul is. He's in captivity, and he's going, wow, I suddenly have all the time in the world to sit down and just write letters to the church that are just going to go on for e eternity, right? Like, here he is. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity. And, and so here he is, and he begins to write, and this is where Ephesians comes from. You can read about that captivity in Acts chapter 28. During this time, he also wrote Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. Uh, during the same captivity over the space of about another three to five years, he would also write 1 Timothy, Titus, and 2 Timothy. Remember at the end of 2 Timothy, Paul's famous words, and what does he say? I have fought the fight. I have finished the race. Take me home, right? I mean, my, my prayer is that for each one of us at the end of our days, that could be what we could say. Everything that God's put in front of me to do it's done. Have I done it perfectly? No. But by grace, through faith in Christ alone, I'm, I'm finished. I'm done. And, and we could lie down and rest 
in who Christ is and what he's done for us and know that we are safe and secure in the arms of the Father. Amen. So the book of Ephesians, this is from the Gospel Transformation Bible intro to Ephesians, says the book of Ephesians is full of gospel from start to finish. So even though this book is kind of divided into the way that many of the others are, Paul really purposefully connects each of the do's in the second half of the book to the gospel that he's talked about in the first half. And there may be no other book in all the Bible that packs as much gospel uh, per square inch than the book of Ephesians. We've talked about how that this really is a, a, a circular letter. And in this, we find that ideas that are more implicit in other places that Paul has written really become more explicit in this letter to the church in Ephesus. Uh, and so we look here, if you want to go look at the three years that Paul spent uh, in Ephesus, you can go to Acts 19. And one of the things that we learn by reading through the New Testament from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, is that presumably Timothy was the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And so this really starts to begin to broaden our view and the picture that we have of this church. So Paul is planting. Uh, actually, if you read through Acts, you find that Apollos actually is evangelizing. He's bringing the gospel in Acts chapter uh, 18, I believe, uh, to the, the people in Ephesus. In chapter 19, Paul comes along and then spends a little over two years, nearly three years, discipling and establishing this work in this area called Ephesus, and then later will tell Timothy to stay in Ephesus and pastor the church. And so you see the dynamic, and how cool is it through the book of Acts? We can pair that along, 1 Timothy and the book of Ephesians, and even what John writes to the church of Ephesus in Revelation, and really get this beautiful, broad picture of what was going on in the church of Ephesus. Not only that, uh, Eusebius' ecclesiastic uh, histories uh, kind of support that idea of Timothy being the pastor of that church. Uh, but also we see that uh, church tradition says that after John finished his uh, time of exile on the island of Patmos, that he then uh, resided in Ephesus till the day of his death along with his adopted mother. Do you remember who John, the beloved disciple, the Apostle John's adopted mother was? At the cross, Jesus says to John, the beloved, brother, your mother, mother, your son. And, and from that time in church tradition, also the histories of Eusebius also back up the fact that John really did take care of Mary. And so Mary also uh, lived in Ephesus. So here's this church evangelized by Apollos, discipled and established by Paul, pastored by Timothy, and then at the end of his life, John coming in like this elder in the church. And one of the most beautiful things that you can read in the ecclesiastical histories is how this uh, relation of this story of John at the end of his days, literally being carried in by younger brothers in the faith, sat down in front of the church of Ephesus, in Ephesus, and him just saying over them, little children, love one another. Little children, love one another. And you just can hear from First John that that was John's heart cry, right? 
Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and anyone that does not love is not born of God, but he that loves knoweth God, for God is love. That was just his heart. And so this beautiful picture of the church of Ephesus, right? Uh, John writes to that same church in Revelation. He says, you, you have done so well, but you've, you've departed from your first love. Return to your first love, which was the gospel. And so uh, this very rich, beautiful history with the church of Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus was an enormously wealthy, major port city uh, in the Roman Empire. It was a coastal town of Asia Minor. And as a thriving urban center, Ephesus was the capital of the province of Asia. And get this, it rivaled Rome, Antioch, Alexandria, and Corinth in its importance according to the trade routes that were going on in the known world at that time. As such, it was seen by Rome as a very strategic location as the center of the trade routes, and it attracted people from all over the known world, which means it was also a very strategic epicenter for the gospel of Jesus Christ to then spread to all those same ends of the earth on those trade routes. And so in Ephesians, we see a major theme that we have new life in Christ. Over and over and over again, especially in this first chapter, we're going to see Paul repeat just that. It's almost like this anthem over them, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And there's a sub-theme that breaks down throughout, that in Christ now we have unity. So as we are each individually placed by grace through faith into Christ. In fact, if you go back to John 3.16, a very uh, much more translatable version of that would be this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes into him shall receive eternal life. And so there's this New Testament idea that we are being placed into Christ and being found in Him. Um, Beautiful way to remember this and and to think about this is remember uh, Moses crying out to God and saying, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And God's like, if you see my glory, you are going to die, right? He says, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to place you into the cleft of the rock, and I'm going to place my hand over you, and as I pass by you, I'll remove my hand, you can see my backside through the cleft of the rock, right? Do you guys remember that story? And who is the rock that the builders rejected, which has become the chief cornerstone, the rock of ages? It's Jesus. It's why the hymnist would sing, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. We're, we're singing about Christ in that moment when we sing that song. And, and so it is by being placed in Christ who what? Colossians would say the fullness of the glory of God was pleased to dwell is that that is the place of security. That is the place of identity. That is the place where the rest of our life is meant to spring. And so that kind of gives us an idea of the book of Ephesians. And so we're going to spend some time here uh, going through uh, the book of Ephesians. Uh, So we're starting here in chapter 1. Chapter 1 is going to take several weeks. Okay, several weeks. And so today we're just camping out verses 1 and 2. We got as far 
as uh, word one of verse one of chapter one last week. We'll see if we can get to the end of verse two this week. And so one of the things that we've done here, Brian's done a beautiful job of, of trying to give us an idea of where we're going. And so uh, really I've broken down Ephesians into 10 parts and, and Brian took those and he divided those 10 parts and segmented them into five different moments. And the first moment that we're going to be dealing with uh, really has to do with the mystery of redemption. And so here in chapter 1, we're really going to be looking at the mystery of redemption. And so that cross is just there to give us a reminder of what we're dealing with here in this first part of the book of Ephesians. We're really going to be dealing with the mystery of redemption. How, do, how does salvation work? What is all involved in salvation? What, what does it really mean when we say we're, we're saved? Um, I think that, that those words have really become convoluted uh, over time. Uh, and, and so let's really talk about what does it mean to be saved. If someone says, I am saved, or asks you, are you saved? What, what does that really mean? What are we really talking about? And so as we journey through this first chapter, we're really going to be looking at that mystery of redemption, what salvation really looks like, what all is involved in that. What does that mean about who we really are? What does it mean when we say we are saved? What does that mean who we are? Does it mean something about us? And who has accomplished that work? Is it something that we have done or is it something that God in Christ has done for us um, you might already know the, the answer to that as we've, we've even dealt with that this morning. So let's look at verse 1. We've dealt with Paul. We know who Paul is. We know who he was. We know everything that happened with him as we dealt with it last week. But now something different has happened, hasn't it? Because now it doesn't, it doesn't start out and say, Saul, a persecutor of the church of Jesus. What does it say? It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, there are some people in the Bible whom God changed their names and it really speaks to their identity. That's not really what's going on with Saul and Paul. Remember that uh, Paul was born a Jew of Jews, but he was also born a Roman citizen. And he was a Hellenist. He spoke Greek. And so uh, in that time, it was very common for Hellenistic Jews to give their children two names, a Hebrew name and a Greek name or a Hellenistic name. And Paul is really his, his secular name, and Saul is really his Jewish name. So there's not really anything we need to draw from that, but we do know that Paul really began to go by his Greek name as he went out to the Gentiles. He identified himself with them, with that name. But what really speaks to Paul's identity isn't his name, it's what he says next. He says, an apostle of Jesus, of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Remember, as we went through Paul's story last week, it really was Jesus knocking Paul off of his horse, right? It wasn't, it wasn't Paul on the road to Damascus, really conflicted about the things he was doing by murdering Christians and throwing their women and children in prison, 
right? He, he wasn't on his way to Damascus and, and just had this like really conflicted moment of introspection, you know, on his horse along the donkey. You know, they're out in the wilderness. They get out of the city. Things quiet down. And as things quiet down, he really begins to think about all the things that he's been doing. And the Holy Spirit really convicts him and says, you shouldn't be doing this. And he just has a change of heart and says, you know what? I think Jesus is the way and I'm going to follow him and I'm going to live for him instead. That's not what happened, is it? He is on his way, full of zeal, ready to charge down, break down doors, kill people, you know, kick some butt and take some names. Like that, I mean, Paul is on his way. And he is taking names. He's like writing them down. I got this guy and this guy and this guy. Aren't you pleased with me, God? But what does God do in his grace? He knocks him down in his tracks. And hear me, that is the grace of the Lord. That is the grace of the Lord to, to absolutely override Paul's own desires, his own will, and say, stop, you are going to serve me. And do you know that when the God of the universe reveals himself to you, there is only one response. And it's what Saul said. Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? Immediately in that moment, Paul is in a place of submission. And he says what? I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. Remember how closely Jesus identified himself with his church, which is his body. And so now we look at this and what do we see? We see that Paul has gone through an identity change. He's drawing his identity from a new place. He's not saying, Saul, uh, a Jew of Jews, circumcised on the eighth day. I was, I was trained under Gamaliel, however you say his name, that famous guy. I was trained under him and that's why you should listen to me. No. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. What is apostle? The word comes from apostolos. It means sent one. And so Paul's saying, I am the sent one of Christ Jesus by the will of God to you. I have been sent. And to be sent is to operate under someone else's authority, right? So Paul's not writing the book uh, this letter to the church of Ephesus saying, hey guys, I was, I was in prison. I was thinking about you guys and I thought it'd be a really good idea to send you this letter. No, he's operating under authority and it is by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that, that says you need to write this letter to the church of Ephesus. And so Paul sits down and he begins to write under authority. Uh, another way that you could think about how Paul sees himself is with the language of ambassador that he uses in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that he calls us as well. He says, you are now ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through you be reconciled unto God. But Paul wasn't always an ambassador. He used to be a blasphemer, a persecutor. And so here we see this change in identity. What, what, what is this identity change? It's, it's a change in status for Paul. 
And he uses this same change of status as he writes to the church because as we carry on in verse 1, what does it say? It says, to the what? To the saints. Now, in our understanding of saints, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but usually if I'm thinking saint, I'm thinking St. Augustine, you know, St. Francis of Assisi, there's like these dead guys that are dead and gone, and after they were dead, we said, those guys were awesome, they're saints, right? And you too can try to attain to be such a saint as them, you know, like, right? But is Paul writing to dead people? Who's he calling saints? All the believers, all of them. He's caught, grab this, he's calling them saints. Do you know what saint means? Saint means set apart ones, right? To say saints means to be set apart ones. And, and it's not even a Christian word. Paul's borrowing a secular word and he's saying there are those in your culture and your day that have been set apart for their gods, but you have been set apart for your God and your Savior, Jesus Christ. You are saints, holy ones, set apart for the work and the use of God. But were they always saints? No, I mean, think about Paul's letter to the Corinthians. He says, hey guys, um, <laughs> Not many of you were wise. Not many of you really had it going on in your life. <laughs> but God, right? And what did God do? He changed them and he transferred them. He, he, they had a change in status. And what was that status? Paul uses the language of inclusivity. He says to the saints who are in Ephesus, who are faithful, what? In Christ, not faithful to Christ. I mean, wouldn't that make more sense? To the saints who are faithful to Christ in Ephesus. You guys that are really just knocking it out of the park, being good and doing better and climbing that ladder of brilliance and productivity in the kingdom of God. It's, it's not what Paul says. He says, to the saints who are faithful in Christ. Well, what does that mean? It means to the ones who have been set apart by faith, who have been made faithful by Christ. So it's these ones who are full of faith in Christ, but it's even deeper than that because the faithfulness that is theirs, is theirs not because of their faithfulness, but rather because of the faithfulness of Christ and the spiritual mystery in which they have been placed in Christ and Christ's faithfulness now counts for them. What? Do you follow that? To those who are faithful in Christ, it's Christ's faithfulness and they are found faithful because they are in Christ by grace through faith. And so here they are, not by any work of their own, lest they should boast, but rather completely and totally according to the work of Christ on their behalf. 
It's this identity change. Paul was in Christ and he writes to the saints who are also in Christ. In Christ really becomes the language of salvation. The language of justification, of adoption, of blessing. It's all in redemption. It's all redemptive language and it's wrapped up in being in Christ. We are given new identities. We who were enemies of God have now become Friends of God. We who were without, uh, we were not a people, but now we have become the people of God. We had no spiritual father. In fact, rather we did. Our spiritual father was the devil. And now we have been adopted by God in Christ and have become children of God. We are the redeemed. We are the saints. And all of these things, these identities, they are things that have been given to us. It's nothing that we've earned. Praise, yes, praise God. Praise God. We are given new identities. We were enemies of God, but now in Christ, we have been adopted and set apart. We are saints. This speaks to the Holy Spirit setting apart for God the sinner who has been elected to salvation, taking him out of the first Adam and placing him in the last Adam, which is Christ. This is what we call positional sanctification. Where there is this thing that has happened spiritually where God has, through the propitiatory sacrifice of Jesus Christ, as He gives us faith to believe in Christ, we are changed. And we are called, in the New Testament, sanctified. But I thought... Sanctification was something that happens gradually over time. It's a different kind of sanctification. So what we need to wrap our minds around is this idea of that there is a positional sanctification because of the work of Christ on our behalf. And then there's this progressive sanctification that happens on a horizontal plane as the Holy Spirit is working in our lives daily to conform us into the image of the Son, or rather, He is making us into what God has already called us in Christ. Do you see this? There's this vertical positional sanctification that has already taken place, that is already rooted and established and grounded in the work of Christ. It is done. And hear me, church, nothing and no one can shake it. No one can change it. No one can push it off of its base because Christ is what holds all things together. He is preeminent and no one can move him. No one can even take his life from him. He said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. And if I lay it down, I can pick it back up again. And you know what he did? He did it. He laid it down and he picked it back up. And nothing can shake that. And our sanctification, our positional status is rooted and grounded in Christ. And the only way that that could change is if Christ changed. And let me tell you something, church. Jesus never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never moves. He never shifts. He never changes. And His work stands. And in some mysterious way we read to the Lamb who was slain before the foundations of the earth. So even if we wanted to get nitpicky and try and 
dial it down to a specific date. Now hear me, we believe, we, this, the name of our body is Redemption Hill. We believe in particular blood that was spilled on a particular day at a particular point in history on a particular hill by a particular man on a particular cross to accomplish a particular work. So don't get me wrong in this, but if you wanted to somehow base everything in that, we still have to look to a magic that is deeper still, and I don't mean real magic. I'm using C.S. Lewis's language from the Chronicles of Narnia when at, spoiler alert, we won't go there. Magic that is deeper still, right? That there is a deeper work that is going on in the cross where all of Satan's minions and he himself are glorying in what they believe to be a victory, forgetting that Christ laid it down, knowing full well that what he was accomplishing in that moment had in some, I'm not saying I understand it, but I believe the Bible to be true, some mysterious way already been rooted and established in eternity past. And so those who are found in... I'm getting a little bit excited. I'm sorry. This is important stuff. Those who have been placed in Christ by grace through faith, that changes them spiritually. And it is a done work for all time. Hallelujah. What a Savior. So what about progressive sanctification? has declared us righteous, holy, and blameless in Christ. And we stand where we are and we go, I am far from that. And it is the Holy Spirit's personal, relational work in our lives day after day, moment by moment, little by little, sometimes in heaps and bounds, sometimes... It feels like grains of sand at a time. He is forming us into the image of the Son, which is Jesus Christ, in whom we have been placed by grace through faith in Him alone. Positional and progressive. So there's this positional sanctification that happens so that progressive sanctification can begin. It's why Luther would, would say simultaneous et pector, simultaneously justified and sinner. Or we, we live in this place of being simultaneously saint and sinner. There's this already not yet work that has been taken place. We are already in Christ. We, we've already been declared righteous, but we're not yet fully there in the natural. But one day we will be. When will that day come? when we see Jesus face to face. And as long as we're here and as long as we have breath, there's still work to be done on us and in us and through us by the Spirit forming us into the image of the Son for the glory of God, for the good of His church, for the kingdom. So don't give up. Don't grow weary in well-doing. This is the biblical saint, not someone who is perfect, but rather who, someone who by grace, through faith in Christ, have been placed positionally in Christ and they are declared saint, not because of what they have done, but because of what Christ has done and their identity has been changed because of Him, not because of them.
those who are the faithful, those who are full, literally full of faith in Christ Jesus. How has this been accomplished, this change in status? How has it happened? Well, what does he say? He says, grace to you, verse 2, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace are products of the gospel. Grace speaks to our salvation, and peace speaks to relationship. Paul loves doing this, combining the two different words that speak to two different aspects of what God in Christ has done for us. There's another uh, way that he does this in Colossians. If you want to turn there, you can. Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. It says this, it says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. Now I want you to hear that, what Paul just said. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. It's a past tense work that he is speaking to. It's, it's something that's already been accomplished, it's already been done. Who has qualified you and who's done it? I give thanks to the Father. So who gets to qualify you before God? God. Who gets to say whether you're worthy or not? God. And how is that worthiness determined? By grace through faith in Christ. All those who are found by grace and faith in Christ have been declared worthy. They've been qualified. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to what? To share in the inheritance of the saints. Hear that word again. He's already, again, he's calling us something that if we look at our flesh in our daily life, in our natural life, we say, I am not this. And yet somehow in Christ, I am. Remember, where, where is this language spring, springing from? Uh, Paul would, would write about it in Romans and Galatians again as well when he would point us back to Abraham, right? And what does the Bible say about Abraham? And Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him as righteousness. It was through faith that Abraham was declared righteous, not through what he did. And this same language is being used again. For us, it's the same. It is by believing into Christ and what God has done in him that we are declared righteous. That's what faith is all about. And so he says this, listen to this change in status. Verse 13, Colossians 1. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That really is like a word picture for what's going on. We were in the kingdom of darkness, uh, allegiance to a different sovereign and God in Christ has transferred us, He's delivered us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Do you see the change in status? There's this change in status. Kingdom of darkness, kingdom of His beloved Son. And then He does this word pairing again. Verse 14, In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Sounds, again, very similar, right? Like similar thing going on, but there's a difference. Forgiveness is a canceling of debt. Debt cleared. And couldn't all of us rejoice in that? 
But in, in Christ, our debt has been cleared, canceled, done. And, and that would be enough to rejoice in. But it's more. Not only has the debt been canceled, we have been declared righteous. Why? Because God in Christ did not simply pay our debt. He redeemed us. He literally bought us back by His blood. We were His. We are His. He bought us back. And what this is a picture of, same in Ephesians 1 verse 2, is a picture of relationship. Where forgiveness points to a canceling of debt, redemption points to a restoration of right relationship. And Paul is saying grace and peace be to you. And it's the same kind of language because he's speaking grace to the salvation, to the canceling of the debt, and peace, which speaks to what? To relationship. Not only has the debt been paid, but we have been brought into right relationship. And church, if we are going to live from our identity in Christ, then we need to daily be reminded of our salvation and the relationship in which God has brought us into with Himself. We need to be reminded that we have received both grace and peace. Why? Because often we will, we will get to this place in our flesh and in our nature where we say, yeah, I know, I know I'm forgiven. I know God's forgiven me, but I'm, I'm just not living right right now. I, I really haven't been doing the right thing. And so, you know, I know God's not happy with me right now. Church, you are, if you truly have come to faith in Jesus Christ, your positional sanctification is established. It's rooted. It's grounded in Christ. You are the beloved children of God. And it does not matter what what you do, you cannot change God's love for you. Amen. Glory. And so no matter where you are and what you've done and you've run away and you've done all these things, you can stop, run to Christ, run to your Savior with open arms, knowing that as a loving Father, He's already standing there with His arms stretched open wide, ready to embrace you because He not only paid your debt, right? He's not the Father who comes along, who's ticked at his son because of all the debt that he's incurred and because it looks bad on him, he comes along and he cancels the debt but says, you're dead to me. That's not the kind of father that he is. He comes along and even though you've drug his name through the mud, he comes along and yes, he cancels his, your debt, but then he embraces you with tears of love and acceptance and rejoicing and says, child, you are mine. You were dead, but now you're alive. You were lost, but now you're found. Enter into the joy of my salvation. This is the God that we serve and this is what Christ has accomplished for us, church. And this is what we need to remember every single day and every moment of every day. And let me tell you something, I'm not there. I wish that I was. How often I stray, how often I forget. And that's why we need each other. 
because we need to be reminded. We need the gospel to be preached to us. And the moment that you start thinking, I've got to figure this out, I'm going to seclude myself, I've got to sequester myself so I can work through all this and get it figured out, you, you are listening to the wrong preaching. Someone's preaching to you, but it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because you have been adopted into a family. You are not an only child. You have brothers and you have sisters whom God has purposefully, intentionally, lovingly surrounded you with so that we can point each other back to the goodness of our Father and say, no, 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 no. You don't understand how much Dad loves you. But you don't understand what I've done. You don't, don't you remember what Christ did? This, this is not to make light of sin. Sin is dangerous. Sin will kill you. Sin will destroy your life. It will wreck you. And if you are living in open, rebellious sin, hear me today, stop, repent, and run to the Father who's ready with arms open wide to receive you. It's not His wrath that leads us to repentance. Jesus stood between God's wrath and us and absorbed it. It's His kindness that leads us to repentance. It's remembering that He sent His Son to absorb His wrath that should lead us to run to our Father. Remember the prodigal son. Even his servants have it better than I do right now. Let me go back to the Father. But the Father didn't let him just serve, did he? He took his robes of sin and he clothed them in robes of righteousness. He took his naked finger and he put a ring of sonship on his finger, which was a ring of authority. And it was that change of status. He didn't say, okay, son, why don't you come and, and work the farm for a year and let's see just how serious you are about this change that you are going to do. No. He changed his son. And he's changed all those who call on the name of the Lord. Well, yeah, I'm scared. Maybe God doesn't want me. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And anyone who comes to me, anyone who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. If you are willing to come, he is willing to receive you. And we would rest in the knowledge and the faith that if you are willing to come, it is because God is working in you, giving you both the desire and the strength to do what pleases him. You could not come on your own. At the end of Colossians, uh, not the end of the chapter, but further on in Colossians 1, Paul says this, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled you in his body. There's that language again. Reconciled how? In his body. By, of flesh, by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister 
And in the English, this sounds a lot like an if-then. If you'll continue to believe it, then it will be true about you. But in the original Greek, Paul writes this as a confident assurance that they will be preserved in faith by God to the end. Grace and peace, products of the gospel, salvation and relationship, the inheritance of every believer, spared from God's wrath through faith in the propitiatory sacrifice of Christ and right relationship as sons and daughters adopted by God so that each and every one of us this morning who are in Christ stand under a banner that says over us and about us, it is finished. Would you stand with me this morning? Father, as we come now to a time of worship and communion, I pray that the truth of the words that we sang earlier this morning and the truth of the words that have been proclaimed over us through the preaching of your gospel would be the seeds of the word of God that are planted in our hearts. God, even as we sing together now, let that word be watered. Let roots begin to spring forth in our hearts into soil that has been prepared by you to receive your word. God, there may be some today that have been trying to work out their progressive sanctification without ever having received a positional sanctification by justification through faith in you. Not a decision that they made, but rather, God, you coming and by your Spirit revealing yourself to them through faith. I pray that today would be the day of salvation. That today a change in identity would take place. And that they could begin to live from a different place of motivation. Rather than living from an if then, if I do this, then God will. God, rather let them begin to live from the because, therefore, of the gospel. Because God in Christ has done so much for me. Therefore, I can face tomorrow. I pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let it be done. Amen. Would you come receive the sacraments this morning?